All right, if you have your Bibles with you, let's go Romans chapter, 13, or chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, we were in Romans 13 last week. Um, Romans chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of Romans spells out for us God's mercy, His great mercy that He has showed us on the cross of Christ. And as we said last week, Romans chapter 12 is a switch. It is a turn from theology, from God's mercies. It turns and then it shows us how shall we live. And the first verse of chapter 12 gives us this turn. It says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. I'm going to I'm going to steal Jesus' parable from Matthew 18 to kind of set this up. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us the parable of the unforgiving servant. Where we get a picture of a king sitting on a throne, all powerful, all wealthy, so far above his servants. And then we have a servant who has somehow gotten himself into the position where he owes the king a billion dollars. A few billion dollars. And of course, could any of us pay that? Anybody in here pay that? And if so, you want to give me some of that? No, of course not. And so Jesus lays out this parable, this picture of the servant realizing that there is no way for any amount of time, no matter what job he can find himself in, no matter what he does, there's no possible way he could ever repay the debt that he owes the king. And he comes on his knees, and the picture in my mind is somebody who's tears in his eyes, realizing that in his debt he has just torpedoes his entire life. I'd be thinking, I have torpedoed the life, of, the life of my wife. I've torpedoed the life of my children. I've ruined everything. And the picture is, he's coming to the king on his knees. He says, what, what can he say? I, I can't pay you. Give me more time. Let me pay you. I, I, give me more time and maybe I'll, I can come and I can, I, can make, I can make this right. And of course, we're reading this. We're saying, there's no way you can do that. There's no way you can make this right. And Jesus' point is we all see ourselves in that situation where we have a king who is an ultimately holy and righteous and just God. And in our sin, we have stored up for ourselves a debt that we cannot hope to pay. that we can't even come close to paying. And so, Jesus wants us to see that as we approach God, our only message to Him can be, do you have mercy for me? Do you have, do you have, do you have it in your kingly heart to have mercy for me? And in Jesus' parable, He says, I forgive your debt, Go. And in Jesus' parable, we, we see the servant being forgiven of all of this debt, and then he goes off to a servant who owes him $1,000 and beats him up and wants to throw him in jail. And we see the, the wrath of the king that says, I've, I've 
I've paid off your debt. I've forgiven your debt. And this is how you go, you pay someone else. And so this is the idea that, that when the king forgives us of this billion dollar debt, that changes the trajectory of our entire life. And this echoes what Paul tells us here. In view of God's mercy, offer your entire life as a sacrifice to God. And now comes the twist I'm going to make on Jesus' parable. If we were to read that this king has forgiven the billion dollar debt of that servant, and then we see him walk out the palace gates, head held high, bragging to us, hey, guess what I just pulled over on the king? Look how smart I am. I walked in, I said the right thing, and look what he gave me. How good am I? And what if we hear the guy going to his neighbor and saying, hey, come take a look at how much is in my bank account. Listen, that, that king, he forgave me. Look how rich I am now. What would we think of that guy's pride? We would think at least he doesn't understand the mercy that he's been shown. And at worst, we'd say, that guy deserves to be in prison for his debt. He doesn't appreciate what has been given. And so Paul's question, as he, as he turns from the mercies of God to how should the mercy of God set us on a trajectory in our life, the first stop he makes is he calls us to humility in the face of the mercies of God. It's the first thing he, step, he stops on. He talks about the government, like we talked last week in chapter 13. Talks about other things as they come. Talks about our love for one another. All those things. But he starts with humility. And in these next verses, he's going to tell us this. In view of God's mercy, in view of the good news of Jesus Christ, be humble. The Gospel humbles us. The Gospel humbly connects us. And the Gospel humbly empowers us. So that's where we're going today. Let's read together. Romans chapter 12 goes like this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Some of your translations will say, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what's our first stop, Paul? How does a living sacrifice, how do we live as a living sacrifice? How are we not conformed to this world? How do we have a transformed mind? What does the gospel shape in us? First thing, for by the grace given me, I say to you, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. How do we live a life of living sacrifice to God? What's the trajectory that our life is on after we understand the good news of the mercy of God The Gospel humbles us. The Gospel tells us, don't think of yourself too highly. Think of yourself with sober judgment. This idea, church, of having a tra- putting your life on the trajectory of humility, this idea is totally countercultural to the church in Rome. Don't forget, they're down the street from Caesar's palace. The culture in Rome wants you to raise your kids to be proud Romans. To be proud of your accomplishments. To be little Caesars. Not the pizza. To be little Caesars. In fact, this Roman culture, this Greek Roman culture is so infused with pride that many scholars think in the original language here, Paul had to invent a word to explain humility and sober judgment of yourself. Isn't that crazy? But maybe it's not so crazy because this is really no, not so different from the culture that we live in where We're in America, and America is about everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame, right? That's what's famous about America. We all want to be famous. It's not so different in our own time. Pride is still, in my heart, the catalyst of most of my sins. When I'm harsh with my wife, it usually comes from a place where I say, Doesn't she know who I am? I, should, I deserve better. When I'm harsh with my neighbor, pff, at least I'm not like that scumbag. I love my neighbors, by the way. Don't, don't read too much into that. So, with this culture, Paul says, don't be, be, be transformed. Don't, don't, don't find your mind at peace and comfort with the mind of the world, but rather have your mind transformed. Be humble. And so the question is, why? Why do living sacrifices in view of God's mercy, why is our first stop humility, Paul? Why isn't it evangelism? Or why isn't it how to love your church? Why isn't it other things? Why do we stop with, why do we, our first stop, why is it humility? Because to understand the mercies of God, to understand the Gospels, to understand that I can take no credit for anything good in my life. And it understands, I can take credit for all the sin 
in my heart. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. The Gospel is crystal clear. I have not raised a finger to earn anything in my life. I haven't raised a finger to earn salvation. I haven't raised a finger to earn sanctification. That means I haven't raised a finger to receive eternal life. I haven't raised a finger to be better at imitating Christ. I have done nothing to earn those things. It is all from God. Everything I have in my life, according to the mercies of God, is from God. Everything. So there's no room in my life if I correctly understand the gospel. There's no room for pride. If I correctly understand the billion dollars I owe the king, how can I walk down the street and think I'm better than anyone? How can I take pride in my bank account when the king has forgiven me of a billion dollars? How can I think I'm better than you if I understand the depth of the debt I owe God? And Paul will say it this way to another church in Ephesus. He says it this way, and you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Why, why does he say dead? Why doesn't he say, I got a five-month-old. Why doesn't he say, why doesn't he say you were in your sins and transgressions like a five-month-old? Five-month-old, he can do like four things. He can, he can poop, he can pee, he can eat, he can sleep, and he can roll over. That's it. Paul, why didn't you say five-month-old? Well, because a five-month-old can do much more spiritually than a dead man can do. A dead man can do what? Nothing! That's, that's the point of the Gospel. Listen, you weren't a little bit of a sinner that Jesus had to polish up. You weren't halfway to God and Jesus had to take you the rest of the way. You and I were dead in the grave. And what can dead men do? Nothing. We are dead in our sins and transgressions, but God being rich in mercy, in view of God, God's mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even though we were dead in our sins, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, Christian you have been saved. So what's the picture? We got to get this. We got to understand this. You were in the grave. You didn't do anything to earn God's favor. You didn't act right, think right, pray right, tithe right, attend church right. You did nothing. You did not, you did not make God love you. You weren't lovable. You were dead. And God reached into your spiritual grave and He raised you up. And that's why you're saved. That's why you're saved. And so if that is the mercies of God, how can any believer be prideful? Where is pride in that? Where is pride? In view of God's mercy, there's no room for pride in the life of a Christian. And then Paul even goes further. We say, well, maybe that's just, that's just being saved. Maybe other things, I mean, I'm a, I'm a good businessman or I'm popular in my social circles or I'm X, Y, and Z. 
Maybe those things, can I take pride in those things? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 11, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. From God are all things. Can we take pride in anything in our life? No. To understand the mercies of God, to understand the Gospel, is to understand that we have done nothing from salvation to sanctification to the graces that we've got. There is nothing that we can take pride in. There is nothing that we have done to earn these things from God. It is all from His mercy and His grace. If we get that, it will change our life. And the first thing that it will do is that it will make us humble. And so Paul says, therefore, in view of this mercy that God has given us everything out of His grace, that I have no room to brag about anything that I have, but in view of that mercy, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Do not think of yourself better than you are. Do not think of yourself that you have earned good things, that you pulled yourself up from your own bootstraps. Do not think of yourself like that. That confuses the Gospel. Rather, Paul says, think of yourself soberly. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Sober judgment. Well, let's talk about what drunk judgment would mean. What, is drunk, what, what would drunk judgment look like? As I said earlier, well, my wife needs to know who I really am. Doesn't she know who I am? She needs to, she needs to respect me like I deserve. She needs to treat me like I deserve. My boss needs to treat me like I deserve. In the church, we could think of things like this, and we're going to touch on this later. My church is lucky to have me. My church is lucky to have my money, my gifts, my talents, my wisdom. In our own hearts or at church, we could be the man at the temple that we hear about in the Gospel. Thank You, O Lord, that I'm not like those sinners. Thank You, O Lord, that I'm not like that tax collector. That's a man who doesn't know the mercies of God. You are that tax collector. You're worse than that tax collector. The mercies of God. What's, a, what's drunk judgment like? Why can't they just be as smart as me? Don't they get it? Haven't I earned more? That's drunk judgment. Do not have drunk judgment. The mercies of God exclude that kind of talk in, in the heart of Christians. That's, that's not appropriate talk for living sacrifices who see the mercies of God. Rather, we see ourselves with sober judgment. And sober judgment says this, Wow. I am such a wicked sinner. I was a breath away from spending an eternity in hell. I was a breath away from being in hell and being under the wrath of God forever. Wow, I owed God a billion dollars worth of debt. Wow, and Christ came and spilled His blood for me? And not only that, but every day, he continues to give me free gifts of grace. Wow, he's given me three children? I don't deserve that. 
He's given me a church family. I don't deserve that. Sober judgment of ourselves realizes the depths of our sinfulness and the heights of His mercy, grace, and love. Sober judgment realizes. Sober judgment still feels the heat off of the fires of hell and realizes that could have been me. And there's no reason that it wasn't me other than the mercy of God. That sober judgment. And listen, we must fight against this temptation to, de- to diminish our own sinfulness. It's a temptation to church to kind of say, well, we're, we're all sinners. I know, it's no big deal now. Like, it's no big deal now because Jesus has come. It is still a big deal. And when we call it not a big deal, we are diminishing the mercies of God. I am still just much as wicked a sinner as when I was first saved. I still can feel the heat of the fires of hell even though I am saved. We need to feel that. We need to say, wow, the mercies of God that I am never going to be there. But man, I deserve it. We need to always realize that my sin still today is as deserving of God's wrath as it ever was. And yet, His mercy is more. That awesome phrase. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. His mercies are new every morning. His mercy is new every single morning. Sober judgment. That is sober judgment. That is the correct trajectory for the life of a living sacrifice. That is the correct trajectory of a life that understands and sees the mercies of God. That is the life that gives no quarter to pride. The gospel humbles us And then Paul says, the gospel humbly connects us. He says, don't think of yourself too highly as you ought. Think of yourself with sober judgment. And then he says, for, read verse 4 with me. For, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we... Though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So it's an odd thing. So Paul says, be humble. We don't usually think in terms like this. Be humble. And one of the reasons that you're humble is because you have a church family. Be humble because you have a church family. Think of yourself not too highly. Think of sober judgment for you are part of Christ together. Isn't that amazing? Why does Paul do that? Why is Paul onto this? Well, we see spread out all through the New Testament when it comes to church that pride kills churches. Pride kills churches. It could come out as other things, but pride kills churches. 
at the base, at the center of most of our sins, maybe all of our sins, is pride. Adultery. I'm a, she, she, she doesn't deserve me. She doesn't treat me like I deserve. This person will. A sin of adultery that has at its core pride. The same is true of church. Our personal pride harms our church in our mission, in evangelism, in discipleship, in our love for one another, while personal humility builds up our church. Humility in the pews and from the pulpit and in your small group and in your Sunday school class. Humility is a parable of the gospel. Humility is a story we tell with our life that the gospel is the mercy of God and he has given us everything. And so what will our enemy do? Our enemy sees humility as a parable for the gospel and so what is he going to do to churches? He's going to introduce pride. And he doesn't have to try too hard because our hearts really like it anyway. And so Paul, writing to this church down the street from Pride Central, from Caesar's Palace, he says, you must be humble. And one of the reasons is for you are together in Christ. Now, this in Christ language is really important, and it's everywhere in the New Testament. In Christ. We are saved in Christ, and we were saved into each other. And this language is, to, is so that we can understand that when Christ saves us, my faith in Christ has put us together like we are the same body. That's his point. We are together with Christ and we are like the same person. And this has so many gospel implications. 1 Timothy 1.9, he gave us grace in Christ before the ages began. God chose us, Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Romans 8, 38, 39. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ we have redemption. In Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's vital. It's huge. And my favorite example of this is, is Paul, who wrote this letter. He understands what in Christ means and what he's trying to get at. He understands that Jesus wants us to know that he, we are, when we are saved through faith in him, it's like we are connected and we are the same body. That's what he wants us to know. That's what Jesus wants us to know. And Paul gets this better than anyone. He writes this letter, having met Jesus on the road to Damascus, after persecuting Christians, after dragging them to jail, after supporting their slaughter, he meets Jesus on the road, and Jesus says... Why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church? Not why are you persecuting my people? Both of those are true. He says, why are you persecuting me? What's the message there? When you touch my people, you're touching me. Why? Because we are in the same body. Talk about the mercies of God. So then the math works this way. I'm in Christ, and you're in Christ, and you're in Christ, and you're in Christ, and so we are all in the same body. 
That's the message. And so, to understand the gospel is to understand that we have, by the mercies of God, entered into not only relationship with Jesus, but when we were saved, I entered a relationship with you. That I was saved in order to be also connected with you. So our connection in Christ also must humble us for church membership. Church membership is not some word that some crusty preacher came up with a few years ago to try to get us to commit more. Church membership is from Scripture. What does he say right here? We're all members of one body. That's where we get that term. Church membership. We come together and we are part of one another. So we must humbly, in view of God's mercy, we must humbly plug into our church family. We must humbly understand that when we were saved, we were saved into the church and that our church family is a growth mechanism for our faith. You could go read the Bible at home and you should and you can learn a lot about God, but where you try out the principles of which you will read is right here with these people. Long-suffering with one another. You can read that in your closet at home and know about it up here, but you try it out right here. You're not called to be long-suffering with your neighbor, although you probably should. You're called to be long-suffering with me and with these people here. In fact, there are 59 commands in the New Testament for one another, commands for one another that we can only accomplish in church. So first thing we understand is we have to humbly, because of the mercies of God, we are humbly connected to one another. So Christians, you've got to find a church home. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but that's why we have to find a church family. When we are connected to Christ, we are humbly connected to each other, and this means we are in one body, and so I must humbly seek to feel what you are feeling. Paul will tell us in just a few verses, he will say, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Why? That's a parable for the gospel. We've been saved in Christ into one another. And so we are one body. And when you stub your toe at night, does your ear feel it? You better believe it. The whole body feels that. We need to feel each other. That's not hyperbole. That's not figurative. We are called to be so close together that when you weep, I Weep. And when you rejoice, I rejoice. And that cannot happen when we have a trajectory in our life of pride. Because pride spurns bitterness and hatred and gossip and slander and all these things that separate us when we are called to be humbly connected. So, what we say, what do we say? Unity, unity, unity above almost anything. Unity. Why? Because we're in Christ and we're in each other and we're to be humble. And, and humility is necessary for unity. It's necessary. It's a parable for the gospel. It shows people that we love each other. It shows people that we're in Christ and in each other. It's when we can be humble, we can be unified. We're in one body. Think about this. We're in one body. When I'm not unified with you, when I kick you out, it's like I'm chopping off my own arm. When the church that I knew of growing up split over the color of the carpet, what are they doing? 
They're cutting themselves right down the middle. How ridiculous is that? It's not, it's not a parable for the gospel. It's a parable for the dangers of pride. And so we are in Christ. We are in one another. And our unity, therefore, depends on grace through faith in Christ, not on anything else. That's where our unity comes from. We're not unified because we're all Chiefs fans. I know a family on the back row right now who had to be cut off. Steelers fans. We got a couple Steelers fans. We're not unified because of race. We're not unified because of background. We're not unified because of financial uh, status. We're not unified because of employment. But that's the temptation is to find people who think like you and enjoy things like you and then come together. The beauty of the gospel is in the mercies of God. People who shouldn't belong together are family here and feel it. When each other weep, they weep. And when they rejoice, they rejoice. But they're white and they're black. That's the power of the gospel. So you better rejoice, Steelers fans, when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl this year. So, we humbly are connected in Christ. That means things like gossip and slander have no place. They are a rejection of the gospel. Little steps in rejection of the gospel. When we have things like lack of submission to one another, that's a, Paul says submit to each other, submit to our leaders. When we can't do that, that's a pride thing. And that diminishes the gospel. When leaders, church leaders, are called a few times in Scripture to watch out for vain conceit, to watch out for selfish ambition in leadership. That's a pride thing that will confuse the gospel. When preferences and opinions divide, that shows that we are not unified in the most important thing, Christ. When that divides us, we are not unified as we should be. Pride is a poison that slowly kills a church's love for one another. And if it kills our love for one another, it kills our mission to declare the good news of Jesus to the community. Because Jesus says that Pittsburgh will see our love for one another and they'll see that we are His disciples. If we have pride deep down, it is a poison that will kill our love for one another. And when it kills our love for one another, it will kill our evangelism. When it kills our evangelism, we might as well close the doors and go home. Gospel humbles us. The Gospel humbly connects us. The gospel empowers us to humble ministry. In view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, he says, use your gifts. We've all received spiritual gifts from God. Use them. In view of God's mercy, use your spiritual gifts. In view of God's mercy, we know that God has left us here on this planet to glorify Him by making faithful followers of Jesus. That's why we're here. There are 30,000 unchurched people within 10 miles of where you're sitting right now. Our mission is to make faithful followers, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians. He writes to another church and says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. He's saying this, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's why we're here. That we are Christ's ambassadors. That God is appealing to a lost world through the church. 
30,000 unchurched people within 10 miles. What if God would make 1,000 faithful followers through Trinity out of that 30,000? What if? How awesome would that be? How awesome would that be? And he has given us spiritual gifts to make these things possible. And we're not just here to make attenders. We're here to make faithful followers. Faithful followers are maturing in Christ. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he has given us spiritual gifts. He's given evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for work in ministry and to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God as we mature to the full measure of the stature of Christ. That is the view of God's mercy. He has left the church here to be as his ambassadors so that we might, make an, we might allow God to in us make an eternal impact to make believers and to make believers more faithful, mature Christians. That's why we are here. So church, so Christian, you are God's chosen instrument to make and grow faithful followers of Jesus. And what is the temptation in that? If we understand that halfway, if I see that God has given me a gift for this incredible mission, it's the only mission that will last for eternity, it's the only result of my work that will be around forever, will be what God does through me to save sinners and to mature believers. That's the only thing that's going to last. What, what do we do when we get halfway? Well, halfway we'll say... Boy, I'm glad I'm a preacher because I, I get to speak in front of people about Jesus. Man, that is worth a lot. How awesome is that? We can imagine Christians being puffed up by their role in God using the church to save sinners. Maybe we rank, maybe we rank them. If you've been in church long enough, you know the rankings. The biggest tithers go up here. They're most important. And then charismatic preachers are right here. And then not so charismatic preachers could be right here. And then maybe small group leaders. And then small group leaders who, who have really good snacks are one notch above. And the small group leaders who don't have great snacks are just a notch below. And then at the very bottom, you've got the guy who cleans the toilet. That's a temptation, isn't it? A correct understanding of the mercies of God understands that we have all been given gifts to plug into this incredible ministry, mission to save sinners. We have been included in that by God. But the other side of that is this mission must be coated, dripping with humility. So we can imagine in this church that you have all kinds of different people preaching and teaching and serving and, and you got the rich guy uh, down the street from Caesar's Palace who's coming and he's tithing. Everybody thinks, wow, we're, man, we're lucky we have that guy. He must be the most important among us. And Paul says, no, understand that yes, you have different gifts, but all these gifts are vital to the ministry of the church to see sinners saved by the work of the Holy Spirit. Everybody is vital. He says we are members of one body, ears and eyes and feet and toes. And he uses this several times in the New Testament because churches have problems with this. That ears think, I'm not as 
important as the mouth, or the mouth thinks, boy, <laughs> I'm the most important guy around here. Aren't I lucky? And Paul says, no, in view of God's mercy, that attitude has no place in church. When you understand the gospel, we understand that that has no place. Why? That has no place because our contributions to God, our spiritual gifts that we use, are given to us from God's grace alone. Just like everything else. I have not earned it. Service, teaching, exhorting, generosity, leadership, administration, mercy. All these things have nothing to do with you or me. They are God's gracious gift. We see that as Paul introduces this section. He says, I'm going to tell you this. It's going to be hard. Be humble. You're not so great. God has given you everything. Be humble. And he starts out like this. For by the grace given me, I say to you, Paul, you don't got to qualify yourself. Look, you've been beaten up in every city you've been to for the good of the gospel. You're going to have your head cut off for the good of the gospel. You're going to be planting churches that we know about for eternity for the good of the gospel. You're, seriously, you're, you're healing people through the work of Christ for the good of the gospel. People are being saved through your work. You don't got to qualify yourself. You're the most important guy around. You're writing most of the New Testament. And Paul, even Paul, looks at himself and goes, you got to understand, everything that I have been able to do is purely because of the grace of God given me. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, who's Paul? Paul's a nobody. Who, are, who am I? I'm a nobody. Who are you? You're a nobody. We just know who the somebody is. These spiritual gifts must be coded in humility because they, have been, they are gifts not really given to the individual. They are given to the church. Paul says, having gifts that differ, we're different part, we have different gifts. He says, use them. And then Peter clarifies some of this in 1 Peter 4. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. God has given you gifts, and they're not for you. They're for the good of your church. So don't be humble. Like, man, God must really like me a lot. He let me be a preacher. He must think I'm a pretty good guy. No, he lets me be a preacher because he loves his church. He lets you be a Sunday school teacher, not because you're great, but because he loves his church. He lets you have a nice-sized bank account so that you can love your church through that bank account. He gives those things not to you for you, but to you for the good of your brothers and sisters who share a body with you. Each gift should be coded in humility because each gift is important for the church to be on the mission to glorify God by making more faithful followers of Jesus. He says every body, as in one body, has many members and the members of not, not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The picture here and the picture everywhere else is saying, hey, ears, don't think that you're nothing. And hey, mouth, don't think that you're everything. It says, just like in your real body, every part of your body is necessary for the mission. Cleaning toilets is necessary for the mission. Preaching a sermon is necessary for the mission. Giving financially is necessary for the mission. All these things make up the body to proclaim the goodness of God through His saving sinners. Everything. 
The mouth might think he's pretty special, but if the spleen is gone, he's a, the mouth is a dead man. The mouth might think he's pretty special, but you don't need a mouth if you're running from a lion. You need feet. A mouth might think he's pretty special, but when you're fighting off false teachers who are wolves, you need some arms. Mouth doesn't have anything to do with it. You've got to fight those wolves off. You use arms. Hands and fists and muscles. Humility is necessary for the church to effectively proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Humility is necessary for us to play the role that we have in a parable of the gospel of different people from different backgrounds and different preferences and different likes and different gifts all coming together to proclaim the good news of Jesus and see people saved and discipled. Every one of us. The good news before the mercies of God so we present your bodies a living sacrifice. Get on the trajectory of a living sacrifice. First stop is humility in the face of the gospel. Understand that we have nothing to take pride in, that Jesus has done it all. How can we smush all this together? Humility as living sacrifices, humbly connected to one another, humbly using gifts for our mission as a church. How do we smush all this together? I'm going to leave us with this. This is a quotation I think of often. Nicholas Zinzendorf was a missionary leader in the 18th century perhaps the first of his kind, perhaps the first modern missionary sender. He sent people out, trained them up, sent them out. He sent people in the 18th century to slaves to proclaim the gospel. I mean, this guy is awesome. He's an awesome guy. And his motto to his missionaries that we still have today goes something like this. Preach Christ. Die. Be forgotten. Preach Christ, die, be forgotten. I think that is exactly what Paul had in mind. Living sacrifices. What can we attain? What prideful position are we working toward? Not a CEO, not the most popular man in town, not the president. What are we working toward? We're working toward being a a living sacrifice. And the best we can do, our our height that we want to reach is to preach Christ, die, be forgotten. And we're okay with this. We're okay with being forgotten by mankind because we are remembered by God. We're okay with being forgotten because Christ will always be remembered Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I pray. Bow with me as we transition. Father, Father, we know, we have heard, and we hear it often, but we often forget that there's nothing in me that deserves any praise. Father, even the good things that I do are out of your mercy and your grace. Even the faith that I have is given to me by you. There's nothing that I can boast in. Father, all we, are, all we can do is bask in the mercy that we have received.
to bask in the gospel. Father, may we be a church that, that, can, that can totally divorce pride from our minds. May we not conform to this world where pride is, is, is everything and everywhere. May we, may we be different. And may we not be different as a way to, be a, to check a box on, on being a good Christian. May we, may we be different because we understand and we see the gospel. And we see the mercy that you've given us. And we see the work of Christ. Father, may we be a church that understands the best things that we have going on here for the good of the gospel are actually Christ's work. Father, that's freeing. Father, may we be a church with a motto, preach Christ, die, be forgotten. Father, may I be a pastor with the motto, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Father, may the work of Christ so capture our heart that, number one, we understand humility. Number two, may Christ so capture our heart that we understand and we desire to be humbly connected to each other. And number three, may the gospel so capture our heart that we want to work at the harvest to make more faithful followers of Jesus. And may we understand that even there, there is nothing for us to take pride in, but that's your mercy for others. Father, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.